Back to school. Back to school. A friend of mine who some of us here know quite well, Sam Albury, who's a pastor back in the UK, has come out a few times and missions and spoken at our guest night. Sam Albury, he was invited a few years ago by his old headmaster uh, to go back to his old school to give an assembly at the school. I think you have assemblies here in Malaysian schools, don't you? At the very beginning of the school day, all the school kids from the school, they come into one big hall and there's an assembly lesson. Well, Sam was invited back to his former primary school to give an assembly. And of course, all the kids were ushered into the hall that morning. And there was Sam sitting with his former headmaster. Uh, The headmaster he had been under as a school child. And the headmaster got up and he was introducing Sam to the children. And you know how headmasters are very talented uh, with their eyes. He noticed at the very back of the room, just to the right, there were a few boys, of course, messing around. They were slouching and they weren't paying attention. And he noticed in the corner of his eye, and he bellowed at the top of his lungs, Sit up straight! (laughs) And Sam, sitting just behind him, just instinctively went like that. (laughs) And of course, the kids found it very amusing. They knew the instruction wasn't for Sam. He wasn't one of the school children anymore. He, he wasn't under the authority of his former headmaster, but hearing those scolding words, he just snapped up straight, instinctively. It was as if, as a grown man, he had gone back to school. And as we're going to see in these verses this morning in Galatians 3 and 4, the Galatians are also, in a way, they're acting like children, though they're not. They're being very immature as grown-ups. They're in danger of abandoning the gospel that Paul preached to them, the good news that in Jesus we can have our every sin before God wiped away and we can be reconciled to him as our heavenly father. And Paul's point, uh, main point last week if you were here, was that this amazing new life comes entirely by faith. If you remember what Paul said last week in chapter 3 about God's promise to Abraham that he would bless the world through him and his descendants. And Abraham was justified, he was declared right before God on the basis of believing on God's promise. Simply by believing on that promise. As Paul said, he was justified by faith. The righteous, those who are right with God shall live by faith. And Paul explained how that promise of life to Abraham and his descendants have been answered in Jesus. Have new life with God now. We simply depend on him and his cross, not trusting in anything that we do. But if you've been here for the past few weeks, you know for the Galatian church, troublemakers have been coming in and they've been promoting the Galatians to combine their faith in Jesus with what they do, a performance-based religion. Oh, by all means, have Jesus, but make sure you follow the law that God gave to us, his Jews, as well, to make sure you're right with him. And Paul says as they do that, spiritually speaking, they are going back to school because the law was given for God's people in their infancy, God's rescue from sin was always coming by his promise, not by an obedience to the law. And that's where Paul starts 
in verse 15. Do have a look at it with me. And he starts speaking of the inferiority of the law. The promise comes first and stands. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Paul takes an example from everyday life. He refers to a man-made covenant, something like a will and testament. The instructions on who gets what in our, of our possessions after we have died, if we've made a will. We know how wills work, don't we? Once a relative has died, their will is carried out to the letter. The family members can't alter the will after they've secured it and they've passed away. If your name isn't down to inherit Uncle Bill's rubber plantation fortune, you're not going to see a penny of it. You can't alter his will. What has been written stands and must be followed. And Paul says that's like the promise that God made to Abraham. Notice verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. See, Paul knows that when God made those great promises to Abraham, what we saw something of when we had our Old Testament reading in Genesis 15, when God promised to bless the world through Abraham and his descent and his offspring. God was primarily speaking of a single offspring, a single physical descendant of Abraham through whom God would bring blessing. Right back, all the way back in Genesis, God knew he would send his son who took on flesh, who became the descendant, the seed of Abraham, to save us from our sins. And this promise to Abraham, it was an unconditional promise. Like our will and testament, it's something that stands. It, it can't be altered by anything that follows it, even the law given to Israel so many years later. Look in verse 17. Paul says, this is what I mean. It's very helpful when he says something like that, isn't it? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. Friends, it is impossible. In fact, it's incoherent to say that you can somehow earn an unconditional promise. You know, I made an unconditional promise to Melissa, my wife, when I married her. I vowed that I would love her for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, and in health, I vowed that I would love her as her husband, no matter what. And that meant that the following day after we were married, I couldn't say to her, okay, okay, honey, now as long as you cook my breakfast the right way in the morning, as long as you let me watch X hours of TV every night, then I'll keep on loving you. No, I promise to love Melissa, full stop. She can't earn that promise. She shouldn't have to try and earn it. If she does, it's no longer a promise. And in the same way, God gave his blessing to Abraham by a promise. Not on the basis of anything that Abraham or his immediate descendants would be called to do. So whatever the law is for, it cannot be the means 
by which God would put our world in sin right again. And that raises the question. It's a question that would have been on the Galatians' minds as Paul was writing this. If the law was not given so that we might keep it and be reconciled to God, then what was it given for? Why is more than half of the scriptures as we have them concerned with the giving of that law and Israel's experience living under that law? Paul tells us very helpfully in verse 19, he answers that question, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Paul's saying the law was a temporary addition to show us our sin. It wasn't to be enforced for all time. It was in place, verse 19, until the offspring should come. It was a temporary measure God put in place until he acted to fulfill his promise. But before he did that, the law was added. Why? Verse 19, because of transgressions. Because of transgressions. You see, if you're going to put something right, first of all, you've got to make it clear that there's a real problem that needs to be dealt with. We need to understand why is it so vital that God promised he would bless the world through Abraham and it would be entirely by him, by him keeping his promise. Why must it depend on God and his promise, not on anything that we do? And the law shows us why. You see, laws don't make us good. We know that in our own experience. Laws do not make us good, but they're very good at showing us that we are not good and restricting us from doing even further evil. Last weekend, I was up in Penang with my family, and as we, as we drove up, I knew we'd be using the car to get around the island. And my apologies to Penangites who are here, but I think you know this is true. If you've driven in Penang before, you'll know that the way that they drive up there makes driving in KL look quite courteous and polite and orderly. Good, I'm hearing a little bit of yes, that's good, that's reassuring. I mean, it's not all their fault. The, the roads are, are kind of a lot thinner anyway, aren't they? But you've still got bikes crisscrossing as they fly out of side lanes that you can't even see. Uh, and there's very little in the way of indicating. And Melissa will tell you, if you ask her, that I adapted to that driving environment a little bit too easily to my shame. <laughs> now, the road laws are in Penang, aren't they? There are helpful signs reminding drivers of the speed limits in case they've forgotten. White lines on the road showing where you can and you can't change lane. But we could never ever say that the traffic laws and those helpful signs make people drive well. For me, no, sadly, they just confirm that I'm not the good driver that I should be that I transgress the road laws. I'm a rebel. But imagine what it would be like if there were no laws. No restrictions with penalties attached to those who break them. It'd be far worse, wouldn't it? It'd be chaos on the roads. Melissa and I, sadly, we witnessed one fatal car accident on the way up to Penang. But if there were no rules, if there were no penalties attached for the lawbreakers, the death toll would be far higher. 
Traffic laws, they don't make us good drivers, do they? But they expose our rebellious tendencies and they limit them for our good. And that's what the Old Testament law did in Israel's experience. It showed them up to be transgressors of God's will just like us. Oh, they didn't keep God's will for their lives, and neither do we. And in the best cases, the law would limit that sin. But it can't deal with the problem of sin, of the fact that left to ourselves, our hearts are turned away from God. And we seek to live as we see fit, not honoring him. So the law shows us to be rebels. It has no power to, to change our very desires that we might desire God and honor and love him as our heavenly father. It was never God's ultimate answer to the problem of our sin. It just showed up that problem all the more, that we are not right with God, that we are sinful. Paul continues in verse 19, and it was put in place, that's the law, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. The law was given indirectly. The law was given indirectly. That's Paul's second point. Now, this verse, Galatians 3 verse 20, it is by far one of the hardest verses in all of Scripture to understand. I haven't met anyone who is 100% sure when Paul says, but God is one. Yeah, I know, what, I know what he means there. In fact, there are more than 600 interpretations of this one verse to date. Okay, so, number one. No, I'm, I'm only kidding. It's all right. We're not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do it. We'll be here all day, and I know some of you would love to be here all day, but yeah. Here's what I think Paul is saying in this verse. And if you're not satisfied, you can go away and look at the other 599 options, all right? I think he's saying the law was given at a distance. It was given indirectly. We're told here, and actually it's testified to by Stephen in his speech in Acts 7, that God spoke his law to Moses by an angel. An angel passed that law to Moses, who then acted as a mediator, a go-between for the people, Israel. And Moses is the mouthpiece. He is the one who commands Israel to obey the law and warns them of what will happen if they don't. And yet, and then at the end of verse 20, we have Paul saying, but God is one. And I think he means this. I think he means because the law was given in such an indirect way with all of its conditions attached, it cannot be God's final word on how he will relate to his people. The promise and its fulfillment to come is far more significant God himself gave that promise to Abraham directly, the one true God, speaking directly to Abraham. It didn't need a go-between because it was God simply saying, look, no matter what you do, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and through you and your offspring, I'm going to bless the world. It's a promise, no conditions attached. And that is far more in keeping of God's character of grace as we have it revealed in his word, primarily in Christ himself. The one true holy God who desires mercy 
over justice. Now, that's my take on Galatians 3 verse 20. But as I said, if you're not convinced, by all means, go and look at the other 599 options. Paul sees another question coming in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul goes on, certainly not. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Sure, if the law and all its rules and regulations could make us good for God, then it would be opposed to the promise, wouldn't it? Because our right standing before God, it wouldn't wouldn't depend on the promise, it would depend on our ability to keep God's law. But as Paul's made it clear, that's a dead end for us as it was for Israel. The law doesn't deal with our sin. If anything, it promotes it. It can only expose it and limit it. In fact, Paul says in verse 22, we're prisoners of the law because of our sin. The law locks us up. It shows us that in our sin we are trapped, as it were, under God's just decrees. The law doesn't bring life. The law brings bondage, not freedom. And that was Paul's experience before he threw himself on Christ's mercy. Just have a look at what he has to say in Romans 7, 18 to 19. That screen's a bit bigger. It says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And there Paul is expressing his experience as a Pharisee trying to keep the law to be right with God. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. The law made Paul see that he was morally bankrupt and helpless. He wasn't simply a sinner, but he was a prisoner to sin. It's not just a matter of putting in a bit more effort. Apart from Christ, we are under the power of sin. We enslave ourselves to it. The law shows us we cannot be good for God in and of ourselves. And it forces us to look somewhere else for hope. And so now Paul can speak of the law in a slightly more positive way because it's by the law, by Paul's experience, it's by that experience that God has driven sinners to depend on his son instead of himself. The law was a childminder to prepare us for Jesus. Have a look in verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The guardian Paul has in mind here is the the equivalent of a a Roman day childminder. Uh, Normally, a slave was put in charge of his master's son. Uh, When the son was growing up, still in his infancy, he was the one who would take the boy to school, pick him up after school. And when the boy got home, his guardian would make sure he did his homework. I wonder if the parents here, yeah, that would be quite helpful, actually. In fact, the, the guardian was charged with disciplining the boy when he misbehaved. Everywhere the boy went, the guardian would be following him, instructing him and disciplining him, up until the time when the son would reach maturity. And this custom of a Roman son having a guardian, being under a guardian in his early years, is just like God's dealings with his people through the law. As a Jew, Paul says he was like a child, immature, 
under that guardian of the law, a system of rewards and punishments, or desiring God's will, but never attaining it, feeling constantly distant from God, never having the assurance of his approval, of his love, but just as the slave was one day going to hand over the child to his father, and in Roman society, when that happened, the child actually was officially known as a son. It was the first time he could actually call his father, father. It was that important. Well, just as the slave was also going to pass the child over to the father, well, and when he had done so, the time of supervision would be over, so the law was given to lead sinners to Christ, the one who would deal with our sin once for all, bring us close to God again. A total assurance of forgiveness and love for us. By adopting the law, though, the Galatians, they were going the other way. They were going backwards, locking themselves back up. See, people try to get out of prison. They don't try to break in, do they? But that's what they were doing. They were trying to lock themselves back up into the slavery of rule-keeping. They were enrolling back into spiritual kindergarten. Silly Galatians. Well, it's not just a Galatian problem. Take a look at this comment by Tim Keller. I'm going to read it in case the writing is a bit too small. This is what Tim Keller has to say. Many Christians, though not all, testify that when they first became aware of their need for God, they were extremely religious. They diligently sought to mend their ways and do religious duties to clean up their lives. They gave their lives to Jesus and asked him into their hearts, but so often they were only resolving to be very good and very religious, hoping that this would procure the favor and blessing of God. They tended to have a lot of emotional ups and downs like children, feeling good when they made a spiritual commitment and despondent when they failed to keep a promise to God. So they experienced a great deal of anxiety. They were like children under a tutor. They were on their way to discovering God in the gospel, but they were not there yet. I can relate to that. I wonder if you can. Times when I have trusted in my Christian habits, healthy though they may be, and I've called it due diligence. It's just responding to gospel grace when really they have become an alternative to relying on Jesus, a barrier to me trusting that every obedience required of me by God has been satisfied and secured entirely by his Son. Friends, we cannot say it enough. Being a Christian isn't about childish rule-keeping, but trusting that we are secure with God as we rejoice in Christ and all he has done for our sakes. And that's what Paul knows the Galatians need to understand. And that's what he goes on to explain in the rest of these verses. The implications of what God has done by keeping his promise to Abraham. In Jesus, because if we really appreciate who we are in him now, by God's grace, we won't be running back to rules and regulations to look for assurance before God in what we do. Jesus came to make us full-grown sons. Faith in Jesus means mature sonship. And Paul's first point is we receive a new status. Have a look in verse 
25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you, so Paul's speaking directly to the Galatian Gentile Christians there, you are all sons of God through faith. As you trust in Christ, says Paul, he doesn't condemn you, unlike the law. Instead, you become a son, a son of God through faith. Now, friends, we are not free to mess with the gender-specific language here. I know there have been versions of the Bible that have come out more recently that try to be gender-neutral, and they say, oh, we can't just have sons, it's got to be either sons and daughters, or... but that actually undermines the point that Paul is making here. He's being very exclusive. He's applying this to both men and women, but he is using the title sons for a reason. You see, back in his day, only the son could inherit the wealth of his father in a Roman family. Only the son could inherit the wealth of his father. Whether we are men or women here this morning, as Christians, we are all, in that sense, sons of God. Now, don't worry, ladies. We men are the bride of Christ as well. We have to live with that one. But we are all sons of God. In the sense that we are heirs, recipients of the inheritance that God promised to Abraham and his offspring all those years before. Entirely by faith in Jesus. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Paul wants the Galatians to recall their baptism, which symbolizes our union with Jesus through faith, our sins being washed away in him who died on the cross for us. And as Jesus died to wash us clean, he gave us new clothes. Paul says, you have put on Christ. You are now spiritually before God clothed in him. It doesn't matter who you are in the world out there. You might be a very big, popular, well-known person. You might be considered in society as the lowest of the low probably somewhere in between. But in here, if we're trusting in Jesus, we are all wearing him right now. And so we are equally splendid in God's sight. We are equally splendid in God's sight because we are clothed in the purity of Jesus. If Jesus has given you and me that new status before God that we did not deserve, then who are we to despise one another? That's what the false teachers in Galatia were actually encouraging in their teaching. They, they were encouraging divisions in the church. They were the, the lesser Christians who continued to eat pork and work on Sabbath days. And there were the uber-Christians who bore the mark of circumcision and took their diet very seriously. And Paul says, he uses a very, um, you know, I'll use a very theological term. He says, that's rubbish. <laughs> rubbish. Your status before God and one another doesn't come from who you are in this world or what you do. Verse 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one. 
in Christ Jesus. We maintain those distinctions. Of course, we don't cease to be men or women as we put our trust in Jesus. But Paul's point is don't let those differences become a barrier between yourselves as a church. Slaves were to be respected no differently from their masters in the church. Read Philemon on that. Because they were one in Christ. And the problems, of course, they start when we forget where our status lies in Jesus. And we start to make it about something else. We're, we're really, pro- I don't know, if you're anything like me, we're prone to inferiority complexes, aren't we? We looked at one another and go, oh, that guy serves so much at church. Oh, I'm a rubbish Christian compared to him. And that one reads his Bible and prays for three hours a day. That guy over there is so talented. Oh, God must be so happy with him. Friends, remember you are a son of God. That you will inherit eternal life through faith in Christ no different from any other. And it's got nothing to do with your talents or your service. It's got everything to do with the fact that you are clothed in his son. And that has brought us true freedom with him. A new freedom, that's the second point Paul wants to make in 4 verses 1 to 5. He gives us another illustration. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. We're back in the Roman household again. This was the case in Roman times. A son might be the heir to an incredible fortune that belonged to his father. But until he came of age, his status was no different from the slave in that house that had nothing. He had to wait to take control of his inheritance. Still under a guardian. Under rules just like the slaves were. And that's just like what Paul and the Galatians experienced. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And we're going to look at these elementary principles more closely next week. There's just a teaser and a gift for the next preacher to come. But in summary, I'll just quickly summarize it. I think Paul is referring, when he says elementary principles, he's referring to the, the childish ways that both Jew and Gentile lived by before faith in Jesus when it came to relating to God. Something along the lines of, I'm afraid God will punish me, and so I'm going to do my best to placate him, like a slave under his master. A relationship, if you can even call it that, based on a fear of discipline and a desire for rewards. Joyless, impersonal, never knowing if enough is enough. No security, no freedom. But just as the son, the heir, would be liberated from his slave-like status at a certain date, he would receive that full inheritance. So, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, like you and me, born under the law. And as he kept that law from the heart in all the ways that I know I failed, and then died the death that I deserve for doing so at the cross. Verse 5, he redeems those who were under the law. Buys us out of that slavery to trying to please something that we know as the divine through rules. Desperately looking for security and peace in what we do. He redeems us from that 
hopeless existence. Uh, Firstly, by removing our every transgression in his own perfect blood. But he doesn't just leave it there. Sometimes I think we're in danger of thinking that's what it's all about. The cross is just about my sins being taken away. But we don't appreciate enough what Jesus has saved us for. Verse 5. That we might receive adoption as sons. See, Jesus has not only taken us from death row where we deserve to be, he's given us the keys to his own inheritance. We've been written into his will. We have the promise of eternal life in his kingdom. Didn't earn it. Didn't in any way deserve it. Only Jesus did. But God has given us that inheritance, made us heirs through faith in what Jesus has done. That's the freedom that Christ has won us. And until we delight in that truth, we will constantly be tempted to think, well, Christ gave me a clean slate. Great. He took my sin. And now it's up to me to make sure it doesn't get dirty again. I've got to earn that sonship before God now. That's what the false teachers in Galatia were peddling. Oh, take Christ. Yes, fine. But you make sure you do ABC as well. Rather than trusting in Jesus from start to finish, enthroning him in our hearts now, not because we have to placate him, not because we have to earn our sonship with God, but because he has given it to us in Christ. And so we rejoice and we joyfully submit to him in love and thanksgiving because God has made us his own sons. And the law is still useful For us as Christians in that sense, it guides us in our Father's will. It helps us to understand his character so that we know how to relate to him rightly, to put sin away that was leading to nothing but death and judgment and live in the freedom that Christ brings. But our inheritance in Christ isn't just kept in heaven for us. We've received a very important part of it already, a new relationship. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God sent his son that we might have this new status with him as sons. But God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that we might know that to be true. That we might have the experience of being a son like him. Being able to talk to God, to our Heavenly Father as a son. Paul says we can now cry out by the Spirit, Abba, Father. And that word there is distinctive from all the rest of these words in Galatians. I know they're all in English here, but Paul originally wrote most of it in Greek. But Abba isn't. It's in Aramaic. It's the same word that Jesus used to address his Father when he prayed. It's a really intimate term. It means daddy. This is one of my favorite historical photographs. It's a bit clearer there. It's the U.S. President, John F. Kennedy, at the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office. And you see what's happening under the desk? Little John Kennedy Jr. is there, and he's playing with his toys in the presence of his father. 
Now, many, even back in that day, considered the president to be the most powerful man in the world. Access to him, even for his closest aides, was seriously restricted. They'd be lucky if they got 10 minutes a day with him. But there is little John Kennedy Jr. playing at his feet. It's as if that little boy is saying, John F. Kennedy, JFK, he might be the president of the United States. He may be the most powerful, mighty, and protective man in all the world, but he's still my daddy. And I can play at his feet for hours because I'm his son. Brothers and sisters, we are sons of the Most High. The spirit of his son confirms that in us. And so we can relate to God as Christ did. We can call him daddy. We can enter into his throne room by prayer in our time of need. And the Spirit helps us to live by God's promises as Christ did, to depend on him, to know and trust deep down, even in the hardest of times, that our Father is working in all things for our good, for the good of those who love him. He won't abandon us or forsake us. Nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so his Spirit confirms those promises to us and testifies to the eternal inheritance that we have to look forward to with him. Friends, there's no greater status or freedom or intimacy with God than that which he has given us through faith in his Son. If that is what Christ brought you and me, why would we ever go back to depending on a law or any rules and regulations for that matter to secure peace with God? Paul says law-keeping It's for children. It's for the nursery. Grow up. Hold fast to Christ. Rejoice in him who alone has reconciled you to his heavenly father. And by his spirit, we now cry to that same God, Abba, Father. We experience the personal relationship with him that we were made to know. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are faithful to your promise. As you were to Abraham and through his offspring, and so you are today to us who you have made heirs with him because you've brought us to repentance and faith in your son who's washed away our every sin You've brought us out of darkness and into light. And it's all on the basis of what Jesus has done. And so we thank you. And we praise you. And we pray that you would keep us from the stupidity of abandoning your grace and running back to rules and regulations in our own self-righteousness that can never save. Help us to depend each day on Christ. And so enthrone him in our hearts and live for him, not to please you, but in thanksgiving because you've now made us sons in him. Amen.